I'm Jim Jeffrey, one of the pastors here at Chapel Point, and I am one who's been redeemed and grateful for that, and I want to be ruled under the Lordship of Christ. I hope that's your desire as well. So um, I just returned from Florida, where the temperature was 76 degrees and the sun was shining every day. And I had the privilege of being able to teach a group of students at Word of Life Bible Institute north of Tampa and uh, pour into them for 10 hours of college classes about the church. I want you to know that it was a privilege to speak about this church to them as we're opening the scriptures and looking at what the Bible teaches about the church to use examples from this ministry. And I'm so grateful for you and I am so grateful for what God is doing in this place that I could share that with them. Uh, by the way, today is Valentine's Day. Men, if you forgot that, I just want to let you know, you still got a little bit of time to take care of that before the day is done. They're still selling cards, I think, and flowers and chocolate. And uh, so I wore my, valent my Valentine's sweater, which is also my Christmas sweater, and uh, just to remind you of that. And I want you to know that if you're here today and you are single, you um, have gone through an unwanted divorce, you are widowed or widower, I want you to know that you are loved, that you're loved by God, and you're loved by us as a church, and you matter to God. You're not alone. You're part of the body of Christ, and you are loved by Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. We want you to know that. We want you to sense that. One of the challenges of being a gospel outpost is answering questions. Uh, one of the things that make people afraid the most about ever stepping out and beginning to share about Christ is that questions can intimidate us. Is that right? But I want you to know there's nothing new about this. Jesus had to answer questions when he was here on earth. Like in John 9, who sinned, this man or his parents? Or in Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment? Um, or this is one that's real popular today. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Okay. Um, the woman at the well, why is it that you, a Jewish man, is speaking to me? Uh, or the, the Pharisees, why don't your disciples fast and wash their hands ceremonially like we, we do? And the disciples themselves, after his resurrection, asking, will you at this time restore the kingdom? So Jesus responded and fielded questions all through his ministry. The apostles did that too. In Acts chapter 4, who healed this man and what power or name did you do this miracle? You have um, the, the, um, the great question in Acts chapter 16. I'd love it if someone asked me this question. Paul was, and Silas were in prison, and they, the prison uh, was, was, there was an earthquake, and they were delivered. And the jailer asked this question, what must I do to be saved? That's a great question, isn't it? And Paul responded, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Paul in Acts 17 stands on Mars Hill in Athens, and he's answering questions from the, from the leading philosophers of that day. So answering questions aren't anything new. Not anything new. But how can we overcome our fear of questions? How, how can we deal with questions and, and not be intimidated by that? I want to just encourage you with this thought. Questions are an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. Questions are an opportunity for you and I to share the good news of Jesus. Don't let questions be a barrier to that. They are an opportunity. And so I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. 
And we're going to kind of jump in in the middle of a chapter here, from verse 13 to verse 18. And I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Word of God, okay? Let's do that together. 1 Peter 3, starting at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who avow your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we invite your teaching ministry in our hearts and minds that we might be equipped to be able to answer questions as we live the gospel and we share the gospel, as we become gospel outposts where we, where we live in our neighborhoods, where we work, where we go to school, where we do business and shop and go to restaurants and get our car fixed and wherever we go, that we have those opportunities. God, I pray that we'll be prepared to answer questions in a way that will present Christ and the good news we found in him. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So Peter is really addressing how to equip believers of how to be able to answer questions. And that's what we want to look at today. How can you be ready to answer questions that come up? When you begin sharing the gospel, you begin living the gospel, there will be questions that will come up. How do you respond to that? And there's four things in this passage that I want to focus on today to be able to help you. And the first one is this. In your heart, establish Christ as Lord. If you're going to respond to questions, this is really the starting point. In your heart, establish Christ as Lord. That's what Peter says in verse 15. He said, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Uh, your heart, that's the word we, from which we get cardiac it's, it's the center of your life. He's not talking about the physical organ of your heart that pumps your blood through your system. Hopefully everything's working fine this morning in that area. He's talking about the epicenter of your soul. In the Bible, your heart is the control center. The heart is where you think and where you believe. And the heart is where you, uh, your values are. It's, it's the control center of your life. And he says, in your heart... What we need to do is we need to establish the lordship of Christ in our heart. In your heart, he said, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Or consecrate your heart, dedicate your heart, commit your heart to be the place where Christ rules as Lord. And then he said, set, set Christ apart as holy, as set apart from anyone or anything that can compare to him. To say, be set apart from sin. Set apart in your heart Christ and his lordship. You see, friends, when Christ is lord of your life, it changes everything. 
Jesus Christ died to be your savior and to redeem you, but he redeemed you so that he might be Lord over you. He redeemed you to rule over you and to take the throne of your heart and to rule over your life. And when we begin to do that, it changes everything about us. So maybe a first question we need to ask ourselves, who's sitting on the throne of your heart today? Is it self? Is it some other person? Is it some other goal or aspiration? He's saying, set Christ apart as holy and on the throne of your heart. Set it aside. And when Christ is established as the Lord of your life, several things will also be true. A good conscience will be your moral compass. Look what he he says in this passage. Paul um, describes the importance of our conscience in verse 16. He said, having a good conscience... So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ might be put to shame. A good conscience is your moral compass. Uh, It's interesting how the Bible talks about our conscience. You hear people say sometimes, let your conscience be your guide. Friends, I don't agree with that unless the Bible is being the guide of your conscience. And the scriptures tell us that our conscience can have some problems with it. It can be dysfunctional. For instance, we can have a seared conscience, 1 Timothy 4.2. We can have a defiled conscience, Titus 1 and verse 15. We can have an evil conscience, Hebrews 10.22. But Paul says this in Acts 24.16. He said, I exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards men. So friends, when we, before we trust Christ, our conscience is twisted. The, the, the compass doesn't work. But when we do trust Christ, he begins to shape our conscience. The Holy Spirit begins to take the word of God and begin to really reestablish. Because this world's idea of what is good and evil, what is, what is okay and what's not okay, what is sinful and what is righteous, is very twisted. But as, when Christ is established as Lord of your life, he begins to change your conscience. I love the way that uh, Eugene Peterson, in his uh, paraphrase, the message, says this. He says, keep a clear conscience before God so that when people throw mud at you, none of it will stick. They'll end up realizing that they're the ones that need a bath. That's a paraphrase of this passage. Your conscience will be changed when Christ is established as Lord. And not only is your conscience becomes your moral compass, but good conduct will be your platform. He said, when they they revile your good behavior in Christ... So Christ becomes Lord, your conscience gets changed, and now your behavior begins to change. Friends, one of the things that happened when I trusted Christ, he began to turn me upside down and inside out, changed my life, the way I behaved, began to change. And, and I hope that's true for you. That transformation is ongoing under the Lordship of Christ. He, he says we're, we're followers. If you look all the way up in verse 13, he said, if you're zealous for what is good... If you're zealous for what is good, in other words, you're passionate about what is good. You're committed to that as a cause. And and so your good conduct, doing what is good. And when you have a good conscience, and when you now are zealous for what is good, and your good conduct is the platform of your life, that something else is going to happen. There's sometimes that you may experience suffering. First Peter is a book about suffering. He's writing to Christians who are being persecuted in the first century, sometimes by Jews and sometimes by Romans, but they're paying a price for their faith. Friends, right now today, in China, in North Korea, in uh, Islamic countries, in um, uh, parts of Asia, uh, even in parts of Africa today, 
believers are paying a price of suffering, and that's what was happening here. But he said, listen, as you think about your suffering, in verse 14, he said, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. The word blessed is the same word used in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that are persecuted. It's talking about being spiritually happy and prosperous. You can be suffering and still be spiritually prosperous, according to what Peter's saying here, if you're suffering for righteousness' sake. A little bit later, in verse 17, he says, you're suffering for doing good, not evil, if it's the will of God. You're not suffering because of your own sin, because you're doing something unethical and you're doing something wrong. Don't call that Christian suffering. If you're suffering for evil, if you're suffering for criminal activity, you are, you're not suffering in a righteous way. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about doing good and paying a price for that. You're suffering for doing what is good. And ultimately, he said, Christ himself suffered for us, verse 18. So when we live under the lordship of Christ, everything begins to shift and change. Our moral compass is now being adjusted to the word of God. Our behavior is changing, and sometimes we're even willing to suffer for him. Friends, if you're not willing to suffer for him, then you're probably not ready to answer any questions either. But resolving having Christ as Lord of your life says, I'm willing to suffer for him, so I'm willing to handle questions too that may come up in my life. And when that happens, your life will prompt questions. When a person is establishing Christ's lordship in their heart, and it's changing the way they live, questions will come up. People will ask, you know, what, what makes you tick? Why don't you cut corners in terms of your ethics on the job? You're not willing to lie or steal. Uh, why, why don't you laugh at some of the jokes that people tell? Why, why do you talk about your wife or your husband in such a positive way? Why don't you, aren't you willing to share your answers on the exam with me? And when we start making that kind of a difference, people start asking questions about us. And then when we do that, your life will prompt questions. So the first thing that we see in this passage is that we need to be the kind of people that in your heart establish Christ as Lord. Here's the second thing. In your mind, be prepared to answer. In your mind, be prepared to answer. Look again at verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Let's unpack that a little bit. Always be ready to make a defense and to, ask an, to give an answer to everyone. This idea of being prepared means that you are, you're in a condition for action. You're, de, you're ready to serve that purpose. Same word that was used by John the Baptist when he said, we're going to prepare the way for the coming of the king, Matthew 3.3. He said, be prepared, be ready, be ready to engage. And he said, we need to be ready at all times, always. And we need to be ready to be able to talk to anyone. So always at all times and anyone, any person, because they matter to God, we need to be ready to give an answer or to make a defense. The word for defense here is a word uh, that sounds like this, apology. Now, th this word apology doesn't mean what we mean by apology. When I apologize, I'm saying, I'm sorry, I blew it. Sorry about that. I do that a lot in my life, by the way. I hope you do too. Um, that's not what this means. It means to defend something in a courtroom. To defend in a courtroom. This is the same word that was used of the Apostle Paul in Acts 22.1 in Acts 25, 16, when he stood before a king and made a defense, a legal defense, for his faith. That's the idea. 
The idea, it's, it's a word from which we get our word apology in the, in the biblical sense. So apologetics is a word that's used for giving an answer for your faith. That's what he's talking about. Be ready to do that. And he says, be ready to give a reason. Now look careful at this. Anyone asks you for a reason. Friends, there is an idea out there that faith in God, faith in the Bible, faith in the gospel, faith in Jesus is unreasonable. I'll tell you, that is not true. Absolutely not true. The most reasonable thing to look at creation is to recognize that there's a creator. When I look at the Bible and realize that there is no ancient book which has as many different copies existent as this book, then it's reasonable to believe the Bible. When I look at fulfilled prophecies in the Bible, it is reasonable to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. When I look at the miracles of God in Scripture and I look at the miracles of Jesus, it is reasonable to believe that. It's reasonable to believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. There is plenty of historical evidence and internal evidence in the Bible about that. It's reasonable to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It's reasonable to believe that. There is evidence. There's an empty tomb. There was the, the eyewitnesses of that. So when people say the Bible or faith in God is unreasonable, I want you to know what the real problem is. When I look at Romans chapter 1, Paul says the real problem is with the mind of fallen mankind that has been so twisted and distorted that they suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. The Christian is not the one who is unreasonable. The person who denies the existence of God and denies the reality of the Bible is the one who, according to God, is unreasonable. So you have to decide who you're going to believe. Those who deny God or God himself. And God says the problem is with the heart and mind of fallen man. And so he should be ready to give a reason to give this defense so faith is reasonable. Now, that means that there are some questions that people are going to ask that are faith questions. In other words, these are questions that can stand in the way of them coming to faith in God. And I know that for many of you, that for someone to ask you a question, a faith question, can really intimidate you. I just want you to know I know that. So I want to give you a way to handle it, all right? I'm going to give you a little script here about how you can handle it, and we're going to practice it together, all right? Just like this is a class. You start by saying, that is a great question. Say it with me, please. That is a great question. And because you and your questions matter to me, because you and your questions matter to me, I'm going to think about it. I'm going to think about it and get back to you and get back to you. Stand up and say it with me, okay? Oh, let's do it. Come on, everybody up. Sorry, I've been teaching college students all week, so you can do this there with them, so I can do that with you this morning. Here we go. All right, here's the, here it is. That is a great question. Shout it out. Because you and your questions matter to me, I'm going to think about it and get back to you. Give yourself a hand. Very good. All right. See, you can handle that. Have a seat. I want you to know I have used that a number of times. I'll tell you a story about it later. Now, there are some resources that can help you find answers to questions, but I want you to know that in this church we have resources. Our pastoral team, our elders, our deacons, our small group leaders stand ready to help you get answers to your questions. 
And, and I love it when somebody contacts me and says, hey, I got a question. Because frankly, if I don't have the answer, I will say, that's a great question. And because your questions matter to me and you matter to me, I'm going to think about it and get back to you. That's what I'll say. And, I, and I'll do that. Or if I've got an answer, I will give that to you. I'll tell you what I don't do is I don't blow smoke. I don't pretend to have an answer. Because that is disrespectful to the person asking the question. So I never do that. So here's some resources that I want to encourage you to look at. There's a man named Lee Strobel. Lee um, was an atheist. He was also the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. And uh, when, he, um, when, when he was, as an atheist, he was arguing always against Christianity, but didn't, didn't really take a lot of time to do that until his wife became a believer in Jesus Christ. And it rocked his world. So he decided to get his wife back. She didn't leave him, but she was very different after she trusted Christ. He said, I'm going to do everything I can to convince her that the Bible isn't true, that God doesn't exist, that there is no creator, that Jesus didn't die on the cross, that there was no resurrection. I'm going to disprove it. And he set out to do that with his legal mind, to research it. And he, he really intentionally did it. By the way, there's a movie in 2017 that was put out called A Case for Christ. If you haven't seen it, I'd encourage you to check it out. The story goes, though, that Lee Strobel, examining the Bible, reading the Bible, examining the claims of Christ, checking with experts about the veracity of Scripture, that it's believable, the, the, the historical evidence for the death, the person of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ, finally came to the place where he trusted Jesus Christ as his savior. And Lee Strobel now is a published author, and here's some of the books that he has put out that you can, it's a good place to start in thinking about apologetics, about how to answer questions. Case for Christ is, was his first book. But then he wrote Case for Faith, Case for the Creator, for Miracles, for Grace, and for the Real Jesus. Just a starting place for you to find some of those answers. Just remember the name Lee Strobel. If you want to dig a little deeper, C.S. Lewis wrote a lot of things. One of the books he wrote is Mere Christianity. It's been used of God to bring many people to faith in Jesus Christ and give some reasoned answers for faith. I would recommend that to you. Tim Keller, who pastored in Manhattan and Redeemer Presbyterian Church, wrote a book that's called The Reason for God. Tim Keller is, is a really well thought through author who integrates uh, a lot of different research and scripture together, the reason for God. If you want to go to Amazon or to christianbooks.com, not right now please, um, you can just put in apologetics and you'll have a whole list of different resources that you can look at that'll help answer questions for people. Uh, things, uh, things like by, written by Norm Geisler, Francis Schaefer. Uh, Josh and Sean McDowell, uh, Doug Grodenheis. There's many other people that would, that would do that. Just very briefly, there's a couple different schools of thought about how we give answers for our faith, how we do this thing called apologetics, answering questions that people come up with. Do you remember that when we started this series of messages called Outpost, Pastor Joel took us to 1 Corinthians 15 and talked about the gospel itself. Well, in chapter 15, verses 3 to 8, this is the narrative that we have. And it actually, I think, argues that there's a couple different ways in which we can approach apologetics. In verse um, 3, he said that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And he was buried. And he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. 
And then he was seen, and he talks about all of the eyewitnesses, Peter and James and John and others and hundreds of people, and Paul, last of all, who saw eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ. And I would, con- I would just challenge you to consider the fact that Paul is there saying there is this approach to answering questions that theologians call presuppositional. And that way, what they're saying is everybody comes to these discussions with their own preconceived ideas. And so we just grant, yes, I come with my preconceived idea that the Bible is the word of God and that God exists. And an atheist comes with their presuppositions. And when you look at the basis of the presuppositions and where they lead to, and I would argue that atheism always leads to moral confusion, to broken relationships, to despair, and to men having no purpose for life at all, because nothing makes any sense. So a presuppositional approach says we start with the Bible, and then we show here's what that leads to. But there's also evidential apologetics, where you actually have evidence. And Paul, in that passage, actually uses the evidence of burial and eyewitnesses. So both approaches, in a sense, Paul is using in his argument of this passage. Uh, Okay, we'll come back up for air after that. If I lost you there, let me just tell you that um, there are faith questions that you'll be asked. But sometimes you'll be asked a question that is a smokescreen question. A smokescreen question. A smokescreen question is not a question that is really a barrier for a person coming to faith, but an avoiding of dealing with their own rebellion and need for Christ. I'll tell you a personal story about that. I have two older brothers and a younger sister, and my um, oldest brother, Jack, is near genius. You say, well, how do you know he was near genius? Well, in New York State, where we grew up, in high school, you took college classes, if you were qualified to do that, and in every one of those college prep classes, they had an exam. It was a statewide exam for that course, and it was called a regent exam. If you got a high enough score on all of the regent exams, you got a regent scholarship. One of, I mean, every, any student going to college wanted a regent scholarship because with a regent scholarship, you got a lot of money to go to any state university. My brother Jack got a regent scholarship. Very bright. Only when he got there, it was in the late 60s. And if you have anything, you have an idea what's going on on college campuses in the late 60s, you had, you had the protests of the Vietnam War, you had the free love movement, and you had a, a strong emphasis in universities towards atheism. And my brother got so messed up there that he just stopped attending classes. I just want to say, if you happen to be thinking about going to college, I would highly recommend attend class. It does help in getting an education. He actually got thrown out of college because he just failed every class. His life was just getting twisted and messed up here and here and in every area. So he comes back home and he gets drafted. Before he got drafted, his draft number was coming up. He enlisted in the army and he got shipped to Vietnam. Over in Vietnam, his life got even worse. By the time he came back from Vietnam, he had a number of different diseases he had a number of different, he had, he had experimented with all kinds of drugs. He had an alcohol addiction, and his mind and his heart was even more twisted and broken. But when he came, while he was gone, several things happened. First of all, my mom and dad trusted Christ the Savior. My middle brother, who was living on a commune in Ann Arbor, got saved. 
My sister trusted Christ. I recommitted my life to Christ. Bert, my wife, she trusted Christ. And we're in Bible college by the time he gets out of the service. So he comes home to a house full of Christians. And we're all attending a Bible teaching church. And he doesn't know what to make of this. In every week in Bible college campus, when they ask for prayer, I raise my hand and say, please pray for my brother Jack. And he was now at home. And I would come home and try sharing the gospel with him, and Jack would ask me questions that I didn't know the answer to. So I'd say, Jack, that's a great question. And I, and I respect you and value you and your questions, so I'm going to think about it. I'm going to do some research on it. I'd go back to campus. I'd go to the library. I'd talk to one of the professors. I would get some answers, and I'd bring it back to him. And he'd ask another question. I mean, he asked questions about Noah's Ark. He asked questions about where did Cain get his wife. He asked questions about evolution. He asked questions about the miracles of the Bible. And every single weekend, he asked me a question that I didn't know the answer to. Every week, I'd go back to campus, and I would research out the answer, and I'd bring it back to him. And after a while, I began to become aware that, his, that these weren't faith questions. These were smokescreen questions. And I said, Jack, um... Now, this weekend, I want to ask you a question. And just in his intellectual pride, he had this, this smirk on his face. And I said, just one question. It's real simple. Did Jesus rise from the dead? And I took him to 1 Corinthians 15. I showed him in the Gospels the other evidence of the resurrection, the change in the apostles, the, the, birth, the birth of the church, and all these different things. And um, at the end of that time, I said, now, Jack, you need to know that Jesus Christ is not just a historical figure like Muhammad or Confucius or, or the, all of these different uh, leaders of religion, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and he's unavoidable. That you either trust him as your savior or you will have to fall before him as your judge before you're ushered out into a Christless eternity. And I said, from now on, that's on you. That's on you what you're going to do. I prayed. And that week... My brother Jack got out, he was out hunting in my dad's woods, he got down on his knees and he trusted Jesus Christ as a Savior and Lord. And today, he is a pastor in Northeast Pennsylvania. I want to tell you, I learned a lot about different kind of questions. There's faith questions and there's smokescreen questions. And, and God is now using that same mind that he has for biblical research and writing and theology because that's just the way God's wired him up. I just talked to him yesterday and I'm so grateful I'm so grateful. I want you to notice that Peter here, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he, um, he talks about when you're answering questions and you have that idea of Christ's lordship and you're answering the questions that are there, he said, they ask you a reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, in this world filled with despair and depression and discouraged people, people ought to be able to look at the life of the Christian and say, you are a person of hope in a hopeless world. In a world without meaning and purpose, you have meaning and purpose. In a world without any sense of, the, of a positive future, you're looking forward to some things. And Peter, in the midst of this book writing about suffering, writes about hope. Three times in the first chapter of 1 Peter, he talks about hope. Three times in one chapter, Peter, in the midst of writing about suffering, says this, you have been born again to a living hope, verse 3, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The reason we have hope is because Jesus overcame death, so we don't fear death. 
Then in verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, You have your hope set on the grace that will brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not only the past event of his resurrection, but the coming event of his return gives us hope. And then again in verse 21, he said, When you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So people are going to ask you questions because of your hope in God. They're going to ask questions. And when they ask those questions because your hope is in God, your attitude, this is the third thing, your attitude needs to be like that of Jesus. See, when you answer questions, when you take the scriptures and you give the reasonableness of your faith, you give a defense for the faith, your attitude matters in how you do that. First of all, your attitude needs to be like Jesus because you have courage. Because you have courage, you're not afraid. Look what he, look what he says here. He said, in, your, in, in that moment, he said, you need to, you need to answer the questions and, and do it without fear. Verse 14, have no fear of them or be troubled. The fear is the word for phobia. It's talking about anxiety. It's talking about the, the reality that, that uh, it's our emotional response to that sense of danger or pain. He says, don't be afraid. He says also, don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. The word trouble means to be shaken together, to be stirred up, to be agitated. Same word that is used in, Ma in Matthew chapter 2 and, uh, and verse 3 of uh, all of Jerusalem that was troubled when the wise men came and asked, where is he to be born king of the Jews? Herod and the whole city was stirred up. They were troubled. They were agitated. That's that word. Same word is used in John 14, 1, where, where Jesus says to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Don't be agitated. Don't be stirred up. So having the attitude of Christ means we have courage. We don't have our hearts overcome with fear or be agitated. Friends, fear gets in the way of you being able to answer questions about Jesus. Don't let it. Don't let it. Satan wants to use fear. Interesting that what Peter is saying in this passage actually is um, he's referring to a passage from the prophet Isaiah. You may want to write in the margin of your Bible, Isaiah 8, verses 12 to 13. Listen to this. Do not call conspiracy all that the people call conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, the Lord of, of angel armies, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Friend, there's only one fear that God wants people to have, and that is the fear of God. When God is so big, your fears become small. Let me give you just a, an object lesson in that. You can take a penny, you close one eye, and you hold the, the penny up to your eye, you can block out the sun. Try it sometime, you can actually do that. Just take that penny, hold it up in your eye, close the other eye, don't put it in your eye, just hold it up to your eye, and you can block out the sun. Is that because the sun is bigger? No. The sun's not bigger than your eye. It's because the penny is closer. When you're afraid, it means that whatever you're afraid of is right in that moment closer to you than God and more important to you than God. But the sun is bigger than the penny, and God is bigger than your fears. Always bigger than your fears. He says, so don't be afraid. Let your attitude be like Christ. But something else about our attitude. He said, let your attitude also, verse 15, do it with gentleness and respect. 
Gentleness is part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Gentleness is the same words used by Jesus to describe himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29, that he is, he is meek and lowly of heart. He is gentle, gentle. It's, it's the opposite of being harsh. And then he says, be respectful. Show respect towards other people. Peter uses that same word, by the way, in chapter 3, verse 7, for how a husband should treat his wife with respect, with respect. Same idea. So what is this saying? Don't win the argument and lose the person. Don't treat someone in such a way that you're demonstrating pride or arrogance. Don't act like a know-it-all because you're not. Demonstrate gentleness and respect as you're answering questions. One of the things that surveys of people that don't know Christ, um, what they say about their impressions of Christians is that they seem to be self-righteous and judgmental. And sometimes, frankly, that's been true. But it shouldn't be true according to this passage. Gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Those are Christ-like attitudes. Friends, would you please consider this? Why was it that people who were sinful people felt almost a magnetic attraction to Jesus. They wanted to be close to him, and they wanted to talk to him, and they felt comfortable doing that because Jesus was gentle and respectful towards them. Matter of fact, the Pharisees had a fit about that. They said, you're the friend of sinners, and Jesus wore it as a badge of honor because he was gentle and he was respectful. And he, of anyone that could have condemned them, he could have, but he didn't. He was gentle and, and respectful. Some years ago, a um, young lady that was in our youth group had been befriended by someone who was a Mormon, began getting her to attend that Mormon gatherings on a regular basis. I heard about it, so I went and visited with her and said, you know, I'm just concerned, what, this is what the Bible teaches and contradicts in terms of the personal work of Christ. And, and she, this is what she said after talking about a lot of these things. She said, I'm, I'm more confused than ever now. She said, would you be willing to meet with me and two of the leaders from my Mormon gathering? I said, I'd be more than happy to do that. We set up the meeting. It's on a Saturday morning. I still remember it. So here I am. I'm sitting. This young lady. Her parents are in the kitchen. Here's um, these two men that are leaders in the Mormon cult. And as the morning went on, their attitude became more and more caustic, louder, negative, um, really um, just the, the whole spirit and attitude just got very, very harsh. And I prayed before I went, God, help me to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in this conversation. Towards those men, they need to see Jesus, and towards this young lady. And so the more that they got caustic, the more I got gentle. The more their, their voices went up, I took my voice down. And by the end of that day, this is what the young lady said. She said, I could see the difference in your spirit as well as in your arguments. I'll be in church Sunday. Friends, I want to be be gentle, be respectful. Have your attitude be that of Christ. And here's the last one. In your focus, center on the gospel itself. In your answers, focus on the gospel itself. Look again at verse, um, verse 18. For Christ also suffered. He suffered once. The once for all atoning sacrifice that was the final sacrifice for sin. The book of Hebrews makes that clear. He suffered once. 
and he suffered for sins. In other words, he suffered as an atoning sacrifice to take the place that we had in sin. He suffered as a substitution. We read that he suffered as the righteous for the unrighteous, one who obeyed all the commands of God and lived a sinless life, and in his character fully, uh, fully demonstrated the character of God. He was righteous, yet he suffered for the unrighteous. Paul says the same thing in a different way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, the virgin-born son of God, had no sin nature, and he never sinned. He never broke the law of God. He was a perfect sacrifice. The righteous for the unrighteous, Peter says. Why? What's the mission? What's the purpose? That he might bring us to God. Jesus suffered on the cross because a creator was going to redeem a fallen creation and fallen creatures. Jesus suffered on the cross because he wanted to bring you and me back to God. We were rebels against God. We were hiding from God. We were shaking our fist at God. We were at enmity with God. We were twisted and broken in our sin. And Jesus came and died on the cross to bring us back to God. I am so grateful for the good news of that because there's no way you would have found your way back to God. There's no way you could have taken care of your sin problem that separated you from God. But Jesus did that. That's the gospel, that he might bring us to God, having put, being put to death in the flesh. He died on the cross as our substitute, but made alive in the spirit. His death and his resurrection is the gospel. See, friends, that's the victory. In every conversation you have with someone, in every question that they ask, find a way to bring that question back to the gospel. Here's what I know. Nobody is going to be convinced apart from the gospel of every question that they're going to have. That's why whenever I'm having a conversation with someone about Christianity, I want to bring every conversation back to the issues of Jesus' death and resurrection of God's purpose of bringing us back to God, of what Christ did for us, that salvation is only by his grace through faith. And, and so I, I have a friend that I met with for two years, and every time I met with him, I never knew what his questions were going to be, but I would just say, Lord, please help me to be prepared and, and, to, and just find in his questions a way to be go, go back to the gospel. And so, friends, you don't have to have answers to every question, but you've got to know the gospel. And every question needs to bring people back to that. And when you do that, you're going to find, like my brother, like that young lady, like many people around you, that focusing on the gospel brings faith in Jesus Christ and answers the deepest and most important question of all. So have your heart set on Christ's Lordship. Have your mind prepared to answer have your attitude like that of Christ. And of all things, focus on the gospel itself. Let's pray together. Father, when I think about how many people could be influenced by the people in this church, as we live under the lordship of Christ and he rules in our heart, we live out that hope, we live with our conscience being changed and our behavior being transformed and even a willingness to suffer but to show the hope that we have in Christ. 
I pray, Father, that they'll be ready. We'll be ready to give an answer. We'll be ready to be able to point them to faith in Christ. That we will not be afraid, we'll not be in turmoil, but we'll be gentle and respectful. And that we'll always focus people back to the gospel. God, I think about what could happen if every home, if every individual that attends or is a member of Chapel Point began to live as a gospel outpost, the thousands and thousands of people that would have the opportunity to encounter Christ. I pray, God, that you will help us to be faithful to that calling to be your witnesses. Lord, rule as Lord on our hearts. And through the hope and transformation of our lives, as questions come up, as we share our story and we share your story, God, I pray that many, many people will trust in Jesus as their Redeemer and that they will know the joy and blessing of him ruling their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.